When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace Carbone, and as per the last two, I'm joined by Christian Romo. Christian, how you doing? The Mets almost took first place yesterday. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it was, this was like a little, this was a fun little road trip that we've been having. Seven and three in California. Who I definitely did not see that coming. I thought like I was like 500 I will be happy with. Oh, totally. And I think 500 was the best you could expect from a Mets team that came in basically at 500 playing against the A's who, you know, might be the worst baseball team ever, but also against the Dodgers and the Giants who have had the Mets, they, they, they've destroyed the Mets over the past few seasons. So uh, it's entirely likely that the Dodgers and the Giants aren't good baseball teams, but traveling 3000 miles and getting seven wins out of 10 is an accomplishment regardless of who you're playing. Yeah. I mean, those, the, the A's games happened before the last podcast. We touched on those. I was genuinely surprised at how good they looked against the Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers aren't doing great this season, but they're still the Dodgers. You know, they're still, you know, Moogie Betts and Freddie Freeman and, and the whole group over there. They somehow wrangled two or three wins out of even their lesser players. It it's truly an accomplishment to go in there and take two of three, especially going out there and starting McGill and Peterson and Scherzer for the time that he was in the game. And we weren't seeing a Dodgers team that was especially hurt or like this was the Dodgers team that the Dodgers are putting out. They, they threw Kershaw, they threw Dustin May, they threw Noah Syndergaard. These are the three starters that they're probably going to rely on the most throughout the season. And the Mets, besides that, you know, vintage Kershaw game, played up to their abilities. And it, to me, it doesn't really matter that, like, the Dodgers are a lesser team than they were last season, because a lesser team for the Dodgers is still probably a 90-plus win team, maybe. Like, we, we don't exactly know what the Dodgers are going to, you know, put out this year, but two out of three wins against the Dodgers in Los Angeles is a huge accomplishment because you can, you can still think of them as a playoff team. And if this is the first playoff team that they've faced and, uh, and looked good in a series in discounting that, that Padres series, then that's something to, to take back even after splitting the series in San Francisco. Yeah. I think it I just might've taken a few weeks for a couple of the guys to heat up. I mean, Nimmo's on fire. And McNeil's looking really good, too. And even Vogelback. Vogelback hit that big home run. And since then, he's been... I mean, he was drawing his walks early in the season, but he's he's looked good, too, on top yeah. of Alonzo and Lindor looking good as well. Vogelback is such an interesting player, right? Because he he's really adopted this idea that Major League Baseball players swing too much. And it's super frustrating watching Vogelback because you know he has light tower power and he just decides not to swing. 
and it, it he's one of those players where he can have like a sub 200 average and you still play him every day because he's walking so much um but he decided to swing in san francisco that that was a really nice turn of events and yeah along with mcneil and nimmo getting hot i don't think there's a like a player on the roster who we expect to hit well that isn't hitting well right now maybe marcana is is a little bit off his game right now everyone else is there pete alonzo is hitting francisco lindor is hitting this is the offense that mets fans expected coming into this season regardless of if one or two players are hurt or not performing up to standards the other six can pick them up and that's what a good lineup is all about and i mean if if you get if Beatty and alvarez come around like they hopefully and probably will just because they're top prospects and you know that you can't immediately off of a week and a half of each of them say well they're not they're, this is it they are terrible now if they can turn it around and then that lineup just basically is top to bottom good so that way on the off days like you said if mark Hanna doesn't perform up to his expectations for the season or whatever if baby and alvarez can or even just one of them can really turn it on this is this is this could be a scary team in a way that I don't think people were expecting it to be. You say that we shouldn't judge these rookies by like their first couple of weeks. I'd like you to try to tell that to the rest of the Mets fandom. And I haven't seen people like violently turn on either of these players right now, but yeah, they're they're looking like rookies. I I, I don't exactly know what you can expect out of these players. And I, I think what's encouraging, I think we talked about this last week, is that the things that both of these players are struggling with, except, uh, well, especially uh, Francisco Alvarez, is is very obvious. Like Alvarez has played in, I think, seven or eight games. He hasn't drawn a single walk yet. Swings a lot at very bad pitches. Sometimes, as we saw yesterday in the last Giants game, they go out of the park. And that is a good result. But the zero walks in seven games is a bad result, but also something that is hopefully teachable, something that can be learned and repeated uh, throughout the course of the season. You just kind of have to hope that he gets to play, whether that's, you know, Buck biting the bullet and putting in Alvarez uh, over Nito, as he should, or sending him down to Syracuse to get the at-bats that he needs. I mean, if you're going to ask me what I'd rather see, Tomas Nito hitting 175 with no extra base hits, maybe drawing a walk or two, but just looking generally incompetent, being a good defender, or Francisco Alvarez, who has at least, like, no, Nito we have seen now for, what, five years? This is who he is? Yep. Francisco Alvarez has that potential. Like, right now he's batting one whatever. He hit that ball that was at his eyeballs out of the park, which was insane. Um, but there's the potential there that maybe if you do give him the run, which I think Buck, they were talking about something on the broadcast today. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it sounded like Buck has started to like make little comments. that sounds like, okay, maybe we should be playing Alvarez more. And when Scherzer said that he wanted to, to let Alvarez catch him so that he could help teach him. I think that these are important moments that hopefully will help Alvarez relax a little bit. Cause I think that that also is, you know, when he first came up, it was, it was a lot of, well, you know, we can't play him all the time, whatever. He hasn't, he's been swinging at everything, which is things that rookies do. Sometimes they hit them out of the park when they're up and, and their eyeballs. Sometimes they strike out like Alvarez has done quite a bit. If 
he can relax and get into a rhythm, he's not a bad defender as, nope. as the stats have shown. I think he's in the 83rd percentile defensively, which I don't think is anything that anyone expected seeing no. how he had been in the minors, seeing him p catch that well, which if he's going to be that playable defensively, you kind of got to let him try to figure it out at the major league level offensively. And if he really does struggle, if he keeps struggling for a couple more weeks or whatever, yeah, maybe then you send him down. But he's been making a lot of hard contact when he does hit the ball. And I think that that is something that is important. And even if he hits 230, 240, that's way better than what you're getting out of Tomas Nito. Yeah, the, the point of playing Tomas Nito is defense. And Nito is a good defender, mostly in the pitch framing context, which is important when you have a lot of like older pitchers who require on craftsmanship more than or rely on craftsmanship more than um, pure stuff. Um, but yeah, if Alvarez can be 60, 70 percent of the defender that Nito is, and if we keep on reading stats like this is the first time a Mets catcher has had two hits in a single game, or this is the first extra base hit that a Mets catcher has achieved. I'm sure Buck Showalter looks at those and goes, huh, yeah, I, I think this is probably the catcher that we lean on. Now, we're going to find out for sure if and when Omar Narvaez comes back. I'm not entirely sure what Buck is going to decide at that point. I have a good feeling that I know what he wants to do. Whether he has the power or the ability is another question. We will see for sure once that happens. But yeah, like you... I want to see Alvarez play as much as possible. I also reserve the right to retract that statement if the Mets are in a pennant chase in June and July and he still hasn't drawn a walk. I'm sure he's going to draw a few walks at that point. But you understand what I mean. Like This is a Mets team that is not in a rebuilding state. They are in a championship window and if the time comes where it's obvious that a Narvaez or a Nito is the better option, it probably makes more sense to play them over an Alvarez if your championship is on the line. Yeah, I mean, the reason why he was brought up at the very end last year was because they didn't have a decent offensive catcher. You know, right. James McCann was just nothing. Nito is there for his defense. If Narvaez comes back and he hits the way he was and Alvarez is still struggling, then he's got an option. Send him back down to AAA and just, you know, let him know this, is, this, is, this isn't this is it, but we need to sort of get our pieces in order here. And if he ends up showing in the next couple weeks or months between now and when Narvaez comes back that he can hit, there, I think there is room for him on the roster. You don't love to carry three cat catchers, but you can also make him the other half of the, the DH platoon with Volaback sure. if you want to. Like, there's room for him. Um, but yeah, I, I it, it's all, it, for the Mets this year, it is all about making it to that championship in whatever form that may take. But right now, Alvarez, I think, is definitely going to give them a better chance to succeed than if they called up Michael Perez, you know, that, that would, you're basically two Nitos at that point. Um, the other rookies who have been looking good recently in terms of the pitching, Lucchese came back, he's not a rookie, but Lucchese came back and Budo came up and both of them were really impressive. They were, they were. I, I, I want to, to couch my, uh, my praise of them a little bit, just because like the lineups that they were facing weren't the most impressive 
that's the kindest way for for me to to say that. But I, I don't think anyone had on their bingo card Lucchese being the first Mets, Mets pitcher to go into the seventh inning this season. Like it's, I, I think they started nine pitchers already. Like they they haven't even played twenty games yet, and or I I think they have by the time this this uh, recording comes out. But yeah, it's it's really nice to see pitching depth. I cannot remember the last time the Mets had pitching depth. And this isn't even one of the things that Mets fans thought was going to happen at the beginning of the season. Pitching depth was not something that we thought was a strength of this team. And I don't know if Budo and Lucchese represent pitching depth. Like this is the first time we've seen Budo pitch in the major leagues in a year. First time we've seen Lucchese pitch in two years. I don't know if these are long-term replacements for injured starters, but a win is a win. And it, you can never expect minor league starters to come up and pitch well enough to give your major league team the win. The fact that it happened twice this week against pretty decent competition should be reflective of the strength that this organization has accumulated over the past couple of years, whether it be in developing pitchers. I say that with an asterisk because we're going to be talking about, you know, a couple of failures next, but it's, it's something that Mets fans can hang their hat on. You, you can watch these games where, Scherzer is suspended or Verlander is injured or Carrasco needs some rest and think to yourself, I think they can still win because this offense can still put up five or six runs. And like these pitchers are good enough to allow less than that. And uh, I can't remember the last time I thought that I can't remember the last time I would say that out loud about a Mets team. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely last couple of years or, or decades. They, they, it was a ditching pitching problem and they called up prospects, you got really nervous. And that included calling up, like, Budo last year, you'd get mm-hmm. nervous. Or, or when McGill had to come up in 2021, and it was, oh, yay, and then it was, oh, no, which is also how I'm reacting to McGill and Peterson right mm-hmm. now. Which, oh, yay, oh, no. Mm-hmm. They looked horrendous. That was awful. That is a – Peterson starts bad for your brand right there. Yeah, it is. Um, really – he might be starting that Friday night game against the Braves too, which I'm going to be at. And if uh, he is bad, I, I might die on the spot. That's going to oh be no. horrendous. <laughs> no one has to know that Peterson's your guy. Like I, I don't go out saying how much I like Domas Nito to strangers on the street, mostly because people now like don't know who that is, but you, you can distance yourself from him. There doesn't have to be this connection. Mm, you'd say that, but also I'm going to the Nationals game tomorrow and I will be wearing my Mets Dom Smith jersey. So there, I guess there's like a little bit of me that's kind of masochistic with this and loves people to know. I love people to know that I love terrible players. Yeah, um, but I, <laughs> I, I think the question is with Scherzer, you know, gone for another start, Verlander says he's coming or they say Verlander's coming back in, in the Detroit series. We will see about that. This isn't the last receding of Peterson or McGill, especially in the next like in, in next rotation cycle. So either of them get a chance. They get a chance to redeem themselves. They get a chance to show that they should still be relied upon. Um, and, and, and I guess my question for you is if there's only room for one, because with with Scherzer coming back, with Verlander coming back, that might be the reality of the situation. There's only room for one of these players in the rotation, at least for, for the time being. Who do you choose? Do you choose the 
high ceiling, really low floor McGill? Or do you go with what you know you're going to get every time out of David Peterson, which is a lot of swinging strikes on sliders and a lot of meatballs down the middle? That's It's a really tough question, not just because one of them I love and one of them I really do not like. Um, like you said, Peterson, and McGill has a really high ceiling. But that really high ceiling comes when he's pitching and throwing fastballs that are 98, 99 miles per hour. And when he right. does that, he blows out his arm. Yeah. So he's been throwing fastballs at like 94, which mm-hmm. doesn't work for him. He probably, again, I think he's probably a reliever, honestly, in like the Seth Lugo variety, sure. where like Lugo was like an, a, a decent, he's he's obviously a good starter. He's pitching for the Padres. And last I've seen, he's been doing pretty good. Um, but He's he probably could be a very good reliever if he can turn it up to 99 but only has to pitch one inning at a time. But the, the ceiling there is really enticing. With Peterson, you know what you're getting. So if you're crafting a – when Verlander comes back, when Scherzer is no longer suspended, um, if Carrasco is healthy, you know, if you only have room for one of them, if it's your number five starter, if he's going to be your number five starter, I personally think that Peterson's probably the better choice just because he is kind of – a fine he's a fine number five starter you're gonna get really good starts from him you're gonna get really bad starts from him and you're also gonna get a lot of just like fine he gave up four runs fine that's a number five starter like that's just we've seen what we've seen from peterson we know what it is he's consistently been that i think if he throws his i I know dave cavabianco wrote at amazing avenue a piece about his pitch mix and how he needs to optimize that um if he throws more sliders, he probably turns into a better pitcher. I don't know why they, I don't know why Hefner or anyone else hasn't turned him and said, Hey buddy, throw more sliders. Cause the yeah. slider is one of the best sliders in the league. But if there's also a chance for Peterson to just change how he pitches and to become a better pitcher, but even in the form he's in right now, I think he probably is a better selection than McGill just because when McGill is bad, he is bad and i say that as someone who saw him pitch five times in a row at the end of 2021 there's no one who knows how bad kyler mcgill can be than me oof um (laughs) yeah uh anytime peterson or mcgill is up you have to wonder who's the long guy in the bullpen that's going to clean up the mess and before i didn't know if there was one this jimmy yakabonis has come in and I, i don't know if he can consistently eat two to three garbage time innings but he did very well uh, during that Scherzer game on Wednesday. I don't know if he's the long guy of the future, but yeah, you kind of need a backup plan when Peterson or McGill is your starter. Yeah, I mean, he did. He really did very well in that in that Scherzer start. Um, it's it, like last year was easy. You Trevor Williams, he's gone. Yeah. Um, I mean, Eliezer Hernandez has been hurt. He was someone that I thought might fit that role at some point. You know, if you know, you could even do a thing where you have Lucchese up and it's sort of like six guys and you expect that Peterson only goes, if Peterson goes five or six, then you bring in Lucchese for the last four or you could switch them around where Lucchese's your starter. So that way, if he only, if that one first start was a was a anomaly and he only goes four or five innings, then you can bring in Peterson or McGill. It might be one of those scenarios, almost a piggyback situation. There's, there's a lot of different permutations that this could take. And I think it's just going to, we have to figure it out as, as they go along. I mean, that was the thing with Trevor Williams. Trevor Williams just sort of came in and then they were like, oh, okay, we can use this guy for like four or five innings. That's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, the fact that Jimmy Iacobonis was needed at all is uh, sort of one of the travesties of the Mets season. Maybe a silver lining, you know, getting a 40-year-old 10 days of rest is not the worst thing. But uh, it, it was also the thing that dominated the Mets conversation the entire week. And I, I have to ask uh, you, Grace, because... Um, I saw the Scherzer suspension from a different perspective, from the top deck of Dodger Stadium, where I could not tell what was going on because I was at the top deck of Dodger Stadium where you have a beautiful view, you have cheap seats, and you are surrounded by far fewer people than you are at any part of the ballpark. It's a really great place to watch a baseball game unless you want to know what's going on. And... I could not tell what was going on when I saw two old men screaming at umpires in the middle of the fourth inning. I, could you tell me what it was like to just like live through that entire situation, knowing what was going on with commentary, with reporting, with Twitter? So I was, I was at work. I had the TV on on the TV and the I work in a box office, so we had the TV in there, had the the game on the TV, and I was I did have I was in the room for that that portion. It was baffling because I think if I'm remembering correctly, um, because a lot of what my thoughts are about the situation have been colored by then the following you know six seven days after that of, of sure. discourse. Um, what happened while it was in a commercial break? So that they came back and they were like, Max Scherzer's been ejected, and I was like, what? Yeah. And I mean. I'm trying to remember, I think he was connected to the whole, that, that Angels club guy who, who was giving out the sticky stuff. So at first there was the like, did this guy seriously go back to doing this, knowing that they were going to check him? Mm -hmm. But once you figured out what it was, and when you knew who the players were in the, in the situation, Scherzer, the umpires, everything like that, and sort of the... Twitter moved really fast on that, where it was like, right. okay, it was Cuzzy and Bellino, and then then this guy was involved in three, Cuzzy was involved in three ejections, and Bellino was the guy who checked Mad Bum's hand, who kept staring at him instead of looking at the hand and stuff like that, and and Scherzer says it was just sweat and rosin and everything like that. It sort of took on a different color. I think in the moment, it was like, I can't believe Scherzer would do that. And then when you get a day away from, even a few, an hour or so away from it, you know, you, you see what sort of the bigger moments of the situation were it 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 looks really stupid in hindsight that like it, the the league is is doing all of this stuff about sticky stuff but the pitchers need something to grip the ball and they said when they started doing these sticky stuff checks two years ago that they were going to pre-tack the ball and they haven't done it yet because the league is incompetent when it comes to the baseballs um like to then turn to scherzer and be like you need to wash your hands and then he washes them in front of the the MLB official with alcohol, which is, you know, the quickest way to try and wash your hands of that stuff. Cause if you use open water, you're going to be standing there for 45 minutes. Um, and then he puts more sweat and rosin on it. Cause he needs to grip the ball somehow, which makes it even stickier with the alcohol to sort of just the, the, the storm around it was baffling. And it really just came at, at less yesterday on ESPN, they were talking about it during the game. And that might've been my least favorite part. Because they were acting like real assholes about it. Yeah. They were like, oh, well, you know, Scherzer did it. Like, I can't believe he'd do this. This is so terrible. How could Scherzer, you know, disobey the league like this? Whatever dumb stuff they were saying. And then Cone did the test with it. Like, they showed it during the broadcast. And very clearly, it made it happen the way that it would have happened on the yep. field. And the the Carl Ravage walked away from it being like, 
yep, Scherzer's guilty. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I have I have I have a takeaway from this that I haven't really like heard from anyone else, and it's that I, I understand why both sides acted the way they did. I understand why Phil Cuzzy, having already asked Scherzer to change his glove and wash his hands twice, inspects him a third time. And he's like, "Dude, your fingers are sticky again. Like, I can't, I can't let this happen," and throws him out. I get that. I also understand from from Scherzer's perspective, I followed your instructions. You you asked me to change gloves and wash my hands twice. I get it. Like it it makes total sense why these two individuals acted this way. I think my takeaway from all of this is that umpires really need to be empowered to change their minds. Like I, I think a simple discussion with the MLB official who like asked Scherzer to wash his hands with alcohol, where this official goes, hey, I, I think I made a mistake. I, I think I asked him to wash it with alcohol and he ma- it made it stickier. And I, I think that was the reason why. Like, I don't think Scherzer did anything wrong. Like, I, I think we can let him back. But umpires don't do that. They, they stick to their ruling and they don't change their minds. And when MLB gets involved, they look at the situation and they probably look at the evidence and they think, man, Scherzer really probably didn't bring in anything foreign, probably wasn't trying to do anything malicious, but we have a policy and we have to stand by our guys. And so we got to suspend him. All three of those actors, in my opinion, made rational decisions. At that point, the issue is umpires not being able to change their minds and a policy that makes no sense. What is the sticky stuff policy? If, if I'm hearing that like pitchers can violate the sticky stuff policy with rosin, with something that they're given on the field to use, that doesn't make any sense to me. What, what What's the line? What's the limit? What's the parts per million of rosin and sweat that's required to be on their fingers that crosses the line to suddenly be illegal? To me, that's the biggest takeaway from this in that I have no idea what this policy is. I have no idea what rule Scherzer broke. And we're never going to find out because they're not going to investigate it. Scherzer's not going to appeal the suspension. And that's probably a good thing. It's it's nice to have uh, you know, Scherzer gone for the Washington series and have him back for the Atlanta series. But yeah, I'm a I, I understand why everything happened the way it happened, and I'm still so utterly confused by it. It's just, it's asking umpires, you know, they're trained to do this. Like they've started training them, but it's still asking umpires to make a decision on where the line is drawn. And I think it also comes away looking weird after essentially the same situation happened with Domingo Herman mm-hmm. and they asked him to wash it and wash it. And, and he was like, Oh, I did. I did. And then he didn't get ejected. Rocco Baldelli got ejected, right. which is like a totally different you know, you're asking these these groups to sort of make these judgment calls, and one umpire's judgment is going to be different from another umpire's judgment. And really, the solution here is just to pre-tack the balls. Because yeah. if you make the balls tacky, they don't need to use farms. They don't need to use all this rosin and, and pull the sweat off and, and, and everything like that. They don't need to use that if the ball's already tacky enough for them to throw. But the league, again, has... Instead of doing the easy thing, they have somehow made this a very difficult thing and something that is is hard now for teams and for pitchers to navigate as well. What's going to make this even worse is that that's that's the obvious solution. 
that you also can't do midseason. Like you can't introduce a brand new ball for pitchers to get used to suddenly in the middle of a competitive season. Like this is something we're not going to see a fix for earliest 2024. But even then, that's going to require a whole lot of ego checking at, you know, MLB central offices. So I don't think this is getting fixed anytime soon. I just want to know what the rule is. I think Scherzer <laughs> wants to know what the rule is. I think everyone just wants to know what 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 can they do? What 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 am I allowed to keep on my hands when I'm throwing a baseball? Yeah, it's it's so, so ridiculous that we've gotten to this point of doing these all these little things when there's one big solution. And like you said, this isn't really, they can juice and dejuice the baseball during the season as they are want to do over the last few years, simply because it doesn't really cause that much noticeably of a difference. But if once you put, once you're introducing a whole new exterior of a baseball, it does become much more difficult to sort of sell that to everyone mid season. Like, Hey, guess what? All new ball. Um, we are, well over our little time limit we've set for ourselves so why don't we take a break and when we come back we'll we'll get into some other stuff and we are back uh we got a a bit indignant about some some tacky stuff but we're going to get a little more indignant about like some some stuff that's real so the two big news stories that really struck out to stuck out to me sorry i'm using baseball idioms um is Something that we could have been talking about the last couple of weeks, and I think chose not to, to stick on the positive side, but talking about anti-trans legislation, I think is going to be a super important part of this podcast, especially because the trans discourse right now is the LGBT discourse. If, If you consider yourself part of the queer community, you need to know what is going on in these legislative offices. The, the first one I, I want to touch on just very briefly, because I, I don't think it's like actually that big a deal. Um, yesterday, which which was Sunday, the House of Representatives passed a bill outlaw, outla- outlawing trans kids to participate in youth sports. Um, this bill has no chance of becoming law. There's no chance it will pass the Senate. There's no chance it will pass President Biden's desk without being vetoed it's still something that needs to be heard because these are our elected representatives in the highest legislative body in this country, straight up outlawing trans kids to participate in youth sports. And this isn't like outlawing trans kids from participating in one sport or another. It's just a a blanket ban entirely. No trans kids, no youth sports whatsoever. And I don't know what the justification for that is beyond hate. It's hate. Like I, I, I can't see a reason why this would be passed just to, to, um, to protect the kids in a way, or to protect the sanctity of youth sports, whatever that means. This is a. It, it's just a, a power play. Something that you know is not going to be put into effect. But uh, I wanted to know what what your thoughts are about this development. It's so stupid. Like, there's all these issues going on in the country right now, and the House is controlled by Republicans, and they've decided that the best use of their time is to pass a bill that has no chance of passing, outlawing trans pe- trans kids in sports. And I, it's just, it's so ridiculous that this has become their platform. It's it, This has nothing to do with 
like really big issues in our country that they could be solving right now. They're instead focusing on this very small minority just to hurt them. Like there's no, there's no actual justification for this. I think it's just, it's so ridiculous. You know, this is, this, this is again, you can go back and see this where they try to pass legislation about like gay marriage and stuff like that. Like, again, they're doing stuff that has no chance of passing just so that way they can make a, a, a section of their constitu- constituency, which, you know, the people who are incredibly online, conservatives who are incredibly online know about this stuff, but you see plenty of conservative people in, in more rural areas, people who aren't online as much, and they're like, why the hell should I care about this? This doesn't affect me. And it, like, it, it, it goes against the idea of the party as a whole, that they're supposed to be very small government, no government intervention, intervention, everything like this, but they will gladly intervene if it means that they get to beat up on a minority. Yeah. And uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's the easiest way you can tell if someone is a small government conservative or not. The, the very obvious quote, I don't agree with that, but it's none of my business. It's, it is not my business to say when the government should be able to intervene in someone's life or not, and therefore not going to touch it. it. Seems like these House Republicans are are very big government to other people. They don't really care for that government to apply to them, but they're happy to tell other people how how they should live their lives. And it's starting to make me wonder, like, what exactly is this platform? What exactly is the purpose of this? Is this just the next minority that they're they're hitting on just to? Hitting on's a weird phrase, but sometimes that happens too with Republicans. So maybe maybe that was a, a slip that was intended. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on uh, the the House of Representatives because it's it's a stance, um, but without uh, without much integrity behind it. There is one um, development in a state house that I think merits. A little more attention and that's in missouri missouri was already the worst state I, I i don't know if you have a ranking but to me missouri is, is number 50 out of 50. um over the past couple of weeks the the legislator in missouri has been developing a bill that would essentially bar trans children from receiving um medical care not that dissimilar from bills that we've been seeing in many other red states throughout the country. And this bill actually came with some concessions that allowed for trans kids who had already been receiving therapy to continue their therapy. So in a way, it was a little less draconian than what we've been seeing in other state houses, but still something that is very much representative of the Republican template against trans youth nationwide. That has been essentially rubbed away from the Missouri Attorney General, who has issued emergency orders that now apply draconian standards to both trans children and trans adults. According to these emergency orders, which go into effect immediately, the state of Missouri will now require at least three years of counseling, mental health evaluations, and autism evaluations for trans children and trans adults in order to be considered to be treated with HRT, home hormone replacement therapy. This is a de facto ban 
on trans care in Missouri, partially because a lot of these physicians and medical practices in Missouri that open their practices to trans patients don't have the resources and don't have the staffing and don't have the training to conduct these mental evaluations. And I've been seeing a lot of horror stories from from doctors in Missouri who want to be able to treat their patients who are sending them letters saying, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what the next step is. And I will keep you informed the minute that I know about this. But it seems as if healthcare in Missouri is now barred from all trans people. And I don't think this is going to be the only state that is going to do this. It is also worth noting that um, the, the Secretary of State of Missouri, who is uh, a very prominent Republican figure, thinks that this is likely unconstitutional and is not going to pass the courts. Um, and at worst, these orders will expire next February because they are emergency orders and not law. But this also feels like the first step into something a bit more challenging for for everyone involved. This seems like a testing ground for for more extreme legislation. And I think people of all stripes, not just, you know, LGBT people in the United States need to be paying attention to what's happening in Missouri, because this could go poorly for for Republicans there. And it may be the point where they pull back and they're like, okay, maybe we we shouldn't be be doing this a bit more. But based off of their previous success, I, I have doubts that this is going to get any better before it gets any worse. It's it's an emergency order. Like the, the these are de designations that we use for like hurricanes and tornadoes and you know COVID and stuff like that. These are people that are making a choice for their own mental health and and the idea that oh well you need to go through counseling before you do that they already do like i think that this is something that that the the talking points have been like well kid comes out as trans and then we cut off their penis like it, these kids go through counseling the, the the stuff that happens when they are children if they come out as trans is that they socially uh transition they mm -hmm. cut their hair or they grow out their hair they wear boys clothes or girls clothes which whichever way they identify it, it, they don't, there's no hormones, there's no this, there's no that. At most, as we talked about the past couple of weeks, puberty blockers, which yep. are entirely reversible. Um, laws like this feel a lot like the laws that we've seen in similar states um, with regards to uh, abortion care and uh, gay rights. Right. You know, the idea of, well, this is something that we don't believe to be moral or real or whatever it is the problem that that they have with it so they pass these these laws or they put out these emergency orders it's it's all nonsense i mean like you said the secretary of state in the state thinks that well this isn't gonna this isn't gonna last like this isn't this is unconstitutional which it is mm. to to bar it from adults who are free to make their own choices. That is the whole point of this country yep. is that we are free to make our own choices in our lives. And again, they also have to go through counseling. counseling. You know, you don't just walk into CVS and go, hello, testosterone, please. Nope. Like you, you have to go through the counseling to get this care. It takes years to, to go through this care to whatever point that you feel you are comfortable at. 
it's just it's it's draconian it's it's disturbing because the point is that that for me the idea is obviously we need to stand with the trans members of our community because if they can go after them and they do it successfully that's not the end they don't stop there and go well job's done they move on to the next group and the next group and the next group you know the 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 overturning of roe v wade the ideas that you heard from certain members of the that the Republican Party was that next it was going to be um, a Berger Bell v. Hodges or terrifyingly Loving versus Virginia or the 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 court case I don't remember the name for contraception that these are the next steps that some of them would like to pursue. It does right. not end here. This is not the end. This is the beginning. You need to cut it off before it starts. That that's why this feels like an inflection point to me. Like this this feels like this is the spot where it goes one way or the other. And of course, there's a lot of gray area. There's there's no there's no black and white in any of this situation. But I think the entire country is looking at Missouri right now. And it's it's a lot of the very right wing of the Republican Party wondering what exactly can we do to make these orders go through? And then there's, you know, basically the entire rest of the country, because most of of, of the country either doesn't care about this kind of stuff or is very violently against this this sort of legislation that's happening. And I I do legitimately think that like, we're gonna look back at like this moment in this state and think that this is where it stopped or this is where we could have done something and didn't. Like this is where we could have supported our people a bit more. one other point I'd like to to make about this, and I think it's relevant because I, I don't suspect that most people who support this type of legislation care about it being enforced. I don't think they really care about their their local uh, police looking towards these like clinics and physicians wondering if they're like actually administering HRT to adults. I think the point is depopulation. Like the point is to make your state such a hostile environment to live in that trans people decide they're not going to live there anymore. And what I think that that these people are forgetting in, in this process is that that's not an option for a lot of people. Certainly a lot of people who are trans in Missouri would like to leave moving is hard moving takes a lot of money moving takes somewhere to go it takes having a place to be and if you're in missouri and you think to yourself well man like i i don't think this this state was is supporting my right to live anymore there aren't 49 other states that are willing to take you like what's what's the next move and so i i bring this up because i i truly think that we're going to be seeing an exodus unlike we've never seen before of, of trans kids and parents of trans kids from Florida and Tennessee and Texas and, and Missouri and Arkansas and Mississippi, Alabama, all these states that are, that are denying health care to states that we live in, New York, New Jersey, California. And that's not to necessarily say that like that's the correct move. That's the right move. I would very much like people to stay in their homes to be able to feel comfortable in the place where they grew up. But that's what feels like the end game to me. It feels like orders not to enforce 
laws, but to make it so hostile to live in those states that people just decide to give up and move. It's it definitely I mean, this is feeling like this a little bit to me for like the last five to ten years. It definitely this the country we live in is becoming so incredibly divided. Um, and is this going to reach a point, maybe not just specifically over trans right issues, but just in general, are we going to reach the point where there's another civil war or the country just breaks apart? It's harder for the country to break apart in the state that it's in right now, simply because like New York and California are separated by a bunch of stuff in the middle. And there are certain states, you know, every state has its share of Republicans and Democrats or, or however that divide goes. We are so angry at each other for such minute differences. Where does this anger go? You, it's not just going to stay and stay at that level and nothing's going to happen. It's either going to go away or more likely it's going to simmer over. And I think this is the first signs of it simmering over. Yeah, uh, I hope you're wrong. Uh, I hope we, Me too. we don't, <laughs> hope we don't have to, to get to that point. Um, I, I I wish I could end this on a high note, but I I don't think there's there's any silver lining or anything positive that can be brought about. So uh, we're just gonna awkwardly end that right here and uh, and come back with a bit more baseball talk. We'll be right back. All right, and we are back. Um, so something we didn't touch on on the first in the first part because. That was more Mets specific. Uh, a recent opponent of the New York Mets, the Oakland Athletics, are looking to become the Las Vegas Athletics and the latest move of a team from the Bay Area to somewhere other than the Bay Area. Yeah, um, it's not official because it does not seem as if the city of Las Vegas has given their approval. But yeah, it seems as if A's owner John Fisher has already um, made his move to buy a plot of land just outside of the Las Vegas Strip to hopefully build a stadium and move his Oakland Athletics franchise uh, for the third time in their illustrious history uh, to Las Vegas. Uh, Grace, you were telling me earlier that this move means a lot to you, and uh, I'd like to ask you why. So the A's are my American League team. Um, I love the movie Moneyball. And uh, when I first started getting back into baseball, it was that 2018-2019 area of time where they had Olsen and Chapman. And that team was really, like, fun. A lot of really good players on those teams that I liked. But just generally also, I love baseball. And I love the the history of baseball. And this team has been in that area for 50-something years, 54, 55 years. And moving the team is such a slap in the face to those fans who have done nothing wrong. This is not a, oh, the fans just stopped showing up. The fans stopped showing up because you sold off every single piece of your team that you could to make your team cost the least amount of money that you could. You let the stadium just fall into a dilapidated state to the point that there is just random wildlife living in there. And (laughs) on top of that, you raised the prices to come to the games. What do you think is going to happen? This was all a calculated move by John Fisher to screw over the fans, to screw over the city of Oakland, and to just line his own pockets with the Las Vegas money, which I don't know what he expects is going to happen when he moves to Las Vegas, but if he brings this team in the state that it is currently in to Las Vegas, they will have no fans because they will be bad. This team is not going to be good. It's not like, oh, the Golden Knights showed up and 
they just won the expansion expansion draft and got every single good player and and came, turned a championship that very first year. Or the Raiders who showed up and they weren't the best team, but they they were adding pieces, adding pieces. Now they have Jimmy Garoppolo and and these other players, and now they are looking to be at least something of a contender. The team as it is currently constructed, which I don't see that there is a way out of right now because every single trade they've made recently, they are at least coming out even if not on the losing end of the trade. This is a slap in the face to the community that has supported them for 50 plus years in that area, to the team that has won championships in that area. It won three straight in the 70s, one in the in the 80s. It had a good run in the in the early to mid 2000s of consistently being a contender, even with the money amount dropping and dropping that Fisher was willing to put into the team. You know, they still money balled their way into success. It's it's just you can see even the players who used to play for the team. Jerry Blevins tweeted out about it. Chris Bassett tweeted out about it. It's heartbreaking to them. This is a team that is. It, it's not like when the A's moved from Kansas City to Oakland, which admittedly I was not alive for, but they were there for 13 years. This team has been entrenched. There are generations of families who grew up watching this team. This is their team. the The Raiders left. The Golden State Warriors left. Now the A's are leaving. It's it's ridiculous, and and I believe the Raiders owner just came out and said that he the reason why they didn't stay in Oakland was because John Fisher screwed them over too. This mm-hmm. is a calculated plot by this guy to just line his own pockets is as much as he possibly can, and the way for him now is Las Vegas. I hope the deal falls apart. I hope he sells the team. I think this is it's a travesty. I if Vegas wants to have a team, that's fine. They're, they've been talking about expansion for years. I think it would be the perfect place to put an expansion team. But to move the Oakland A's out of Oakland and to just stick another knife in the back of that that community is ridiculous. Yeah, A's ownership has sort of postured over the past couple of years that their options are either Waterfront Ballpark in Oakland or Las Vegas. Like those 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 are the two options inextricable no other paths that this could have gone in. And I think it's been made pretty clear over the past few days that that option was sort of a false dichotomy. Like there was never really an option between the two. The conversation was not about whether like we can get all of the municipal red tape to be cut through for something to be built in the Bay Area or just go to a state where building is a lot easier. It was all about money. It was John Fisher looking at these two potential deals thinking, where can I get an extra $500 million? That's it. And he knows he can't get it in Oakland because those citizens have strongly voted for mayors that have not allowed this to happen over the past few years. And who knows if he can get it in Vegas? History shows that he might be able to. Vegas likes to give public money to stadiums. That's that's a thing that they do. We don't know if it's going to happen yet. There's There's some pretty compelling reporting from the Las Vegas Journal Review that shows that there's a lot of city leaders that are sort of hesitating at this Oakland Athletics deal, or I guess now the the Las Vegas Athletics deal. Um, But I would put a significant amount of money on a deal that goes through in Vegas because I don't exactly know what the next step is if it doesn't go through. And 
I, I think that there's been a lot of discussion that's been had about um, this move from people that are more invested in the A's than we are that I think you should go listen to if you're if you're into that. I'd highly recommend the Tipping Pitches podcast. They're very good when it comes to A's stuff. Um, but there's a couple of points that I would like to make about this. One, I think that this move is a short-term win, but shows a huge lack of long-term vision, both for the league and for the A's. Because I don't know if it's any sort of business savvy that dictates that moving from one of the biggest and wealthiest metro areas in the United States to a bottom five market in the league makes any sense at all. Because there's, there's only four major league cities that are smaller than the Las Vegas metro area. It's Cincinnati, Cleveland, Kansas City, Milwaukee. And not only that, but none of those places are in the middle of the desert trying to host a game that plays primarily in the summertime. Grace, I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas in July or August when it's been 115 degrees, but even at seven o'clock, you don't want to spend more than 10 seconds outside going from your house to your car. I like I understand that they're they're gonna, you know, build a build a stadium with the roof and air conditioning and all that. I I have sincere doubts that they're going to find 30,000 people that are going to come in on a sweltering August night and spend the two minutes it takes to go from their car to the stadium when you're literally in Las Vegas and you can do a whole bunch of stuff. And listen, Las Vegas is a cool city. I, I like it so much more than what it presents on the strip. I think it has a lot of really cool things going for it. And I think that's probably the reason why baseball in Las Vegas is going to fail. Just because like, this isn't a team that the city asked for. This isn't a team that is going to get a lot of tourism for, you know, 81 games out of the year instead of the eight that they get for, for the Raiders. Like this is, this is such a long-term potential disaster for a city that I think legitimately deserves major league sports, just maybe not the summer ones, maybe just stick to the winter ones, basketball, hockey. Like I, I have sincere doubts about a city that can get to 115 degrees at any point for three months during the summer, successfully supporting a baseball team. It just, it's, this feels it feels to me like he's going to get the stadium, build it, and then he's going to sell the team, and that will be the biggest knife in the back. Because the the Oakland leadership have said that they will go back and talk to the team if they have different ownership. They would be willing to renegotiate if there was different ownership in charge. John Fisher doesn't care. John Fisher wants the most money. You know how he could get more than five hundred million dollars is if he sold the team. Because right. even in the current state that they are in. They didn't had a billion, billion and a half. I mean, the Mets were were not in a great state when they were sold. I mean, the the like you said, the Oakland, the the metro area over there is pretty big. Yeah. Same thing here in New York. The team sold for two point five billion dollars despite being in massive debt. Like the Oakland will be able to sell for a billion, a billion and a half dollars easily. It, it's 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 just it's sad it's genuinely i am so heartbroken 
for the I'm I consider them my my American League team. I am heartbroken for the people that that is the team that they root for because again, they're they're moving to Las Vegas. Like you said, I don't know that 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 city's going to be able to. It's 81 games. It's a lot of baseball games to fill up a stadium. I mean, the city of Miami, which is a huge bustling market, no one goes to those games. No, it's it's Vegas is. There's a lot of great areas, like you said. I've never been to Vegas. I'm sure a lot of people live around there. I'm sure there's a lot of baseball fans who live around there. But that feels like putting a team there feels like it's a tourist trap for a thing that isn't going to get tourism. The last five places that Major League Baseball teams have either expanded to or moved to have all been very, very large metro areas. Denver, Phoenix, South Florida, Tampa St. Pete, uh, Washington, D.C. Four out of those five really struggle with attendance, regardless of how good the team is doing. The Diamondbacks don't get attendance. The Rockies don't get attendance. The Marlins definitely don't get attendance. The Rays may have been the best baseball team that we've seen in the last decade, and they don't get attendance. Like, And now you're going to expect the same thing from a city that is a lot smaller than those with a lot more to do. Like, I, They don't even have a TV audience to lean back on here because like you could say that Phoenix and Vegas have very similar profiles. You're you're trying to play a summer sport in a desert city that gets up to 115 degrees, whatever. Maybe Phoenix can sustain a baseball team because there's like 7 million people that live in that, in like driving distance uh, between them and Chase Field. Like, that is not a reality in Vegas. In, in Vegas, you're relying on on tourism to fill in those seats, and then you're relying on exactly what for a TV audience. Like I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that that the league and the teams think that like this is a good long term move. Like I'm the the other thing that's like that's like really confusing about this to me is that the A's lease in Oakland expires next season. So they will be playing next season uh, in Oakland. And there's reporting that shows that the earliest they could build a new stadium in Las Vegas is in 2027. So where are they going to play in 25 and 26? Like, there's there's an outdoor stadium in Vegas. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't think the MLB Players Association is going to accept their members playing in an outdoor stadium in the middle of the desert in the summertime. I don't think the San Francisco giants are going to lend their stadium to the athletics. I don't think the city of Oakland is going to just give them a two year lease on a decrepit ballpark. Like where are the A's going to play? It's It's, this is pure greed. It's literally, it's pure greed without any thought behind it. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not terrible, Grace, though. Your movie minute. Do you have a movie for us? I sure do. Um, this is going to be, it's like a, it's a, it's like one, it's like a one and a half because I'm going to recommend a movie and a book. Um, I recently read Melissa Mayer's uh, oral history on Dazed and Confused called appropriately, All Right, All Right, All Right. Uh, and <laughs> then I rewatched the movie. That movie is fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, totally recommend it. Um, much like, Last week's movie, uh, Almost Famous, takes place in the 70s. Very amazing soundtrack. Um, it's one of those movies that you watch it. It was made in 1993, and you can't believe the people that are in this who were like nobody at the time but have since. I mean, obviously, McConaughey is in it. 
uh, Ben Affleck's in it. Mila Jovovich is in it. Renee Zellweger, like the stack, the cast is stacked with people that now you're like, oh wow, that person's like someone. Um, really funny. Uh, it's the book talks about it too. It's it's like an anti-nostalgia movie that has now become a nostalgia movie. Where everyone's like, I miss the '70s, but if you like actually watch the movie and listen to what the characters are saying, they're like, we hate the '70s. Um, great movie, and then the book really colors in sort of the, I love an oral history. It's my favorite type of like book is like film oral histories. Um, it, it really colors in sort of everything you took to get that movie to that place because it was made by a guy who had made one small indie before it, Richard Linklater, um, and filled with all these unknowns. It took like a bunch of people really pushing it through, fighting with the producers and then the, the, the soundtrack and Richard Linklater getting undercut at every turn and still making this fantastic movie for $6 million. Like it, it's, it's a really great book. So my recommendation is if you haven't seen the movie, watch the movie. Then if you won't like the movie, read the book. If you have seen the movie and you like the movie, read the book, watch the movie again. Like I did. It only took a month, but you finally recommended a movie that I've actually seen. <laughs> uh, I love days and confused. It's the movie I watch when I'm sick. Uh, what I tell people about Days and Confused is that there is no conflict. Nothing bad happens to any of our characters except for Ben Affleck. Um, it is, it is such a a charming movie. It is such a a well done movie. And as you said, like makes you nostalgic for an era and a place because I, I think this takes place in Texas, like Austin, Texas. And yeah. it, uh, I've never had any nostalgia for Texas in the 1970s, but like. <laughs> Yeah, uh, soundtracks banging, uh, costumes are excellent. Like it is such a great, you feel bad, well, spend two hours just giggling because it's it, it's such a, a charming and, and well done movie. Yeah, I, Richard Linklater is one of my favorite filmmakers. He actually, it, it's set in Austin, Texas. That's where he spent his senior year of high school. Um, and a lot of it is based on stuff that happened when he was in high school. Um, so a lot of the characters, they feel very real because they are based on real people, which ended up leading to hit, to some of them trying to sue him, um, which got like laughed out of court because while they were in the court, like lawyers were like, you hated this, right? And they're like, actually we thought it was pretty funny. Like it, yeah. it was ridiculous, but it, it's, it really much like every Richard Linklater film is my favorite, one of my favorite things about him. It feels very real and it feels very loose. Like, it feels like they're just sort of, like, chatting on screen, but everything is meticulously scripted. That's my favorite. Like, the, the the one I'd recommend along with this, I don't know if you've seen this one, um, is sort of, it's he made, like, a kind of a spiritual sequel to it called Everybody Wants Some, um, which Heard is set it? in, like, a, a college in, in Texas in the 80s, um, and it's based on him. He was a, he played college baseball for a little bit, so it's based on, like, college baseball players and sort of the same vibe of, like, a bunch of hijinks over the course of a couple days. It's it's very good. If you've seen Days and Confused, check that one out, too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> double recommendation for me. Days and Confused is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I would hazard against showing it to your girlfriends because I, I don't think this is exactly, like, a couple's movie to watch. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, this is a, a great, a great movie. Highly recommended, especially if you're sick. Great way to, to make you feel better. All right. Uh, I, I think that's a good way to wrap up um, this episode. Grace, did you have uh, anything else that you wanted to mention? I think the Mets, um, by, by the time this, uh, this episode comes out, they will have finished playing against the Nationals. So we're just going to go ahead and say uh, congratulations 
to the Mets for another series win. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully they can repeat the same success against Detroit. But yeah, do you have any other uh, points or notes you wanted to, to point out? That's going to sound really terrible if they lose the series against the Nationals. Like, I it's going to suck to listen to that. But uh, again, I'm really hoping they win. The Nationals are, again, one of the worst teams in baseball this year. Um, I guess all I want to say is um, thank you to everyone who's been listening. This has been really fun. It's We're three we're three episodes in, and this is this has been some of the most fun I've had uh, doing anything. Yeah. Um, so thank you to everyone who's listened. And um, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. See you next time.